Good morning. Uh, I want to give you credit for your part that you've played in these services. Those of you who have never uh, spoken publicly uh, do not appreciate, maybe like I do, the audience. <laughs> when you have an audience that you know is drinking it in and is benefiting from what you're saying, uh, that just really inspires uh, the best in, in preachers. And I see some preachers nodding their heads. Uh, so I want to thank you for your wonderful attention uh, to these messages. Now, we've been working our way backwards. We started out with the idea or with the truth uh, that is clearly taught that it's all about the kingdom. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom. He did not say, seek ye first your own redemption. And I tried to, in that first message, show you that the final focus of all of us and our fondest thoughts and our greatest passion should be focused on this congregation in fact, the whole church of God, but specifically here in all of our decisions to be thinking about the kingdom, not be thinking about ourselves. So it's, it's about the kingdom and our salvation, I, I want you to remember, is a means to an end. It's a very important means, but it is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. When we make it an end in itself, Jesus said we will lose it. Uh, so uh, my takeaway this weekend, I hope this congregation has it burned deep into your hearts that the kingdom of God is where your focus should be and all your decisions. What's, how's this going to affect the kingdom? How's this going to affect the witness of the corporate expression of God's grace? Uh, so that's, that was the first thing. So we started there. Last night we backed up. Oh, so, so what does individual redemption look like? What kind of people does this kingdom have to have if it's going to be a, a, a genuine kingdom? And now to, in this message, we're going to back up to the, again, we're going to back up to the dynamic behind our individual experience and the kingdom of God. Now, the, the thing that we need is something beyond ourselves. Jesus has asked us to do the impossible. He's asked us not to follow our instincts to get back at our enemies, but to love them and bless them. That's not, that's not natural. Our natural instincts run the opposite direction. Our natural instinct is not to be generous with our resources. It's to make a little comfortable nest to our, for ourselves. That's our natural instinct. The natural instinct is not to stay with a difficult marriage that's every day a challenge. Some marriages become very difficult. Uh, and the temptation is to do something different. The instinct goes in a different direction. And uh, we don't instinctively always tell the truth either because once in a while to tell the absolute truth gets us in hot water. And so can't we just shade things a little bit? And so Jesus has asked us to do the impossible. This kingdom is based upon impossible commands. I tell my charismatic friends who are always talking about miracles, they want to see miracles. I say, if you want to see miracles, obey Jesus. <laughs> you have to have miracles uh, because it's going to go the opposite direction of all your instincts. And so this morning we want to look at the kingdom prayer. And you can turn to uh, Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to be talking basically about means of grace. The Protestants sort of reacted against the Roman Catholic Church's idea that you can do certain things to get grace from God, and uh, sort of went in the opposite direction, that there are no means of grace, uh, that God just gives it, and uh, there's no way that you can do anything to, to receive grace. That's not true. In fact, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it gives the best definition of grace in the whole Bible, but the word grace is not in the verse. It says, God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Now we read those words and they just sort of, we go past them and okay, that's what it said. 
Uh, some, passage, some translations say God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly realm. Oh, okay. So I'm a kind of person that does best if I can have a visual image. And so let me give you a visual image. So here are the heavenly places. It's where God is. So what is there? What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about everything that God has. His unlimited wisdom, his unlimited power, his unlimited uh, forgiveness, his unlimited mercy, and you can just keep adding to the list. That's all there. Unlimited. Really? He's made that available to us through Christ? Unlimited resources? Well, just to add to the uh, promise is my favorite verse. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Listen to this. God is able to make all grace, everything that's there, abound. Somebody tell me what the word abound means. Without limits. God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always, having all sufficiency in all things... This is really getting to be something. May abound unto every good work. That's my favorite verse. That takes away all our excuses. Don't say, oh, I just can't forgive him. Come on. Mm -hmm. You're just not availing yourself of, of the resources that God has given you to do that. God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always, having all sufficiency, in all things, may abound in every good work. I tell people, if I had written that statement, people say, well, we always knew that John had an overactive imagination. <laughs> but these are God's words. This is what he has said about the resources he's given to us. And so I want you to remember that verse. It doesn't have to become your favorite verse like it has mine. But please remember that verse. There is nothing God has called us to do there's nothing about his kingdom he cannot fulfill if we avail ourselves of God's grace. Amen. And the way that is done is through prayer. This is, this is the indispensable resource. This prayer was given at the request of the disciples. They saw Jesus praying, and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. They never asked Jesus to teach them to preach. They never asked Jesus to teach them how to heal people. They never asked Jesus how to cast out de devils. They never asked him to do any of those things or to teach them any of those things. All they ever asked him for was to teach them to pray because they sensed that if they could pray like Jesus prayed, all those other things would be given because they saw Jesus praying whenever he was uh, before his baptism or when he was being baptized. They saw him praying and the Holy Spirit came on him. They saw him praying after he fed the 5,000. They knew he prayed all night before he chose his disciples. They knew that he prayed when he healed and taught. And I have references for all of these. He was praying when he was transfigured. He said, man ought always to pray and not to faint. They were to pray without ceasing. I used to wonder how you could do that, but now I know you can text without ceasing. So I guess you also can pray without ceasing. So, and we, they saw him praying in Gethsemane. Here he was up against the greatest test of his life. And I want you to turn to Mark chapter 14. Just keep your finger there in Matthew and turn back to Mark 14. I don't think we realize 
the crisis that he was experiencing at the crucifixion. Verse 33, it says, And he taketh with him Peter and James and John, and began to be sore amazed. If you like, look that up in the Greek, sore amazed means stricken with terror and horror. He was responding just like you were would respond if you knew that the next day you were going to be crucified and the horror of that experience. And of course, to him, it was added even more. He was going to take on the sins of the whole world, whatever that means, and we have no concept what that involved, but it, it, it had to be something horrible. And he was filled with terror and horror. He was a human being. He, he was scared to death, literally. And then it says he began to be very heavy. That word means desperately depressed. Do you ever imagine Jesus being depressed and scared to death? Stricken with horror and terror. Oh God, this is going to be an awful experience. I can't handle this. That was the frame of mind he was in when he went into the garden. And he knew, the disciples didn't realize it, but the only thing that was going to deal with this was prayer. Because after he came out of the garden, we don't see any of that. All we see is poise and dignity and every word and action is just beautiful. The battle was won in that garden. It was won in that prayer uh, vigil. Too often we're like the disciples. They did not join him in that prayer. And they became flustered and they ran off and they did all kinds of crazy things. They had not prepared themselves. Prayer was the secret. So we want to talk about the importance of prayer uh, I want to talk about 10 postures of prayer in this, in this prayer. And I also want to show you that this prayer is pretty completely descriptive of what we experience in all of Christian experience, if we could ever get this prayer under our belt. Actually, the Anabaptists sometimes used it as instruction for baptism. They felt it was a complete instruction for baptism if they could get this prayer in people's thinking and what it means. Now... <clears throat> J. Oswald Smith, a famous evangelist, said there are seven words that would change the world. You have not because you ask not. He said if we could ever manage to get that into our thinking, you have not because you ask not. It would change our whole outlook on life and we, of course, would spend our time in prayer. Neglected prayer is actually or can be sin. Samuel said to Israel, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. So I don't know if you ever thought about it, but prayerlessness is actually sin. Well, sin is selfishness. So if you don't pray, it's because you have your mind on yourself. So we have this amazing model for prayer. And some people think, well, you shouldn't pray the Lord's Prayer. I mean, after all, you should come up with your own original requests, and that'll be more genuine. Well, there's one thing for sure. When you're praying this prayer... You're praying in the will of God. And the Bible says if we pray in the will of God, that prayer is answered. And so when I pray this prayer, I know I'm not praying outside the will of God. James says you, you pray to ask, uh, uh, satisfy your lusts, and that's why some of your prayers are not answered. And so our congregation uses this prayer very frequently, and I think we should. This is the prayer the Lord gave us to pray, and everything is in this prayer. Now, I sometimes am praying this prayer, and I realize I'm just saying words, and then I have to go back, and I have to pray it in a meaningful way in which my heart is in the words that I'm saying. So you can pray it meaninglessly. There are people that do so many uh, 
Lord's prayers and Hail Marys and, you know, they just, they rack up a certain number. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about actually praying this prayer and meaning it, putting our heart and our mind into praying it. And so that's what I want to look at this morning. The first three petitions are to God. He's first in this prayer and our needs are last. This prayer covers the past, forgive our sins that we've already committed. It covers the present, give us this day our daily bread. And it covers the future, deliver us from evil. So this prayer covers the past, the present, and the future. And you're going to see that it covers very many other things, but it does cover the whole scope of our experience. So let's look at this. Ten postures for prayer. The first posture is to pray as sons. Our Father. Our Father. We are children of our Father. Now, what is the response of children to parents, if it's the response it's supposed to be? Well, it's one of absolute trust, especially small children. They believe everything their daddy says. I had a seventh grade school teacher who said one night her father uh, read the story about elephants. And just to be funny, like parents often do, he pronounced it elephant the whole way through the story. The next morning, coincidentally, the teacher read a story about elephants. And the first time she said the word elephant, her little hand went up. Teacher, you are wrong. That's elephant. No, no, it's a, my daddy said elephant. And she told us that she remembered that the teacher could not convince her that that should be pronounced elephant. That's the response of a small child. They believe the father can fix anything. They believe anything he says. My daddy said, my daddy said it. That's our response. God said it. We stand there and say, it doesn't have to make sense. Nobody else has to agree. But this is what God said. And I, I'm a son of the Father. So we need to have a right conception of God when we pray. He is a Father. And that's an amazing concept when you think about it. I can imagine God looking down and saying, look, those people really messed up. And they're headed for perdition. I'm going to save them from hell. But I'm going to make them second-rate citizens in the kingdom. They shall be slaves. I don't know about you, but I just thought that was a wonderful provision that I could be rescued from punishment and be a slave. But that's not what he did. He took us into his family. Now that I don't understand. I don't understand why God would want me to be part of his family. A servant, yes, I can understand that. I cannot understand family, especially knowing the poor contribution I have made to that family and the disgrace I've often brought to that family. But God chose us to be family. And John, in writing 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, reflects that. He says, behold, what manner of love, and that word manner is strange. Behold, what strange love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Now, we don't think about that, but you sometimes stop and think about that. That you have become a son of God, the creator of the whole universe. That you're one of his sons, you are family. It's a privileged relationship. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. He didn't just give us the fear of a slave. You better do what I tell you to do. You're a slave. No, no, no. He made us sons. And that is an amazing thing. This is a very privileged relationship. We can make large requests. 
We have a song in our hymnal, and I don't know if it's in the Mennonite hymnal or not. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power such, none can ever ask too much. And you fathers know how you just love to lavish things on your children. In fact, you do too much, and you spoil them. That's the nature of a father, to want to bless and make the best life possible for his children. The Bible says, everyone that asketh receiveth. Now that word E-T-H in the King James Version is one of the reasons I like the King James Version. Those E-T-H verbs, not always, but most of the time, mean continual. He that asketh, continually asketh, receiveth. He that seeketh, continually seeks. He that continually knocks. The Bible teaches very clearly that persistence is required if we want answers for our prayers. Well, why do we have to persist in prayer? It says God already knows our, want, our needs. Well, I think it's a little bit like a boy that comes to the supper table some night and says, Dad, I don't want a bicycle. And fathers being knowledgeable like they are think, well, tomorrow night it'll be an airplane. Uh, yeah, it, so they don't take it too seriously <clears throat> if it's just ask once. But the next night the boy says, Dad, I want a bicycle. A little bit more emphasis there. Oh, okay, now he said it two nights in a row. Uh, the next night he says the same thing. And about a week later he starts saying, Dad, I need a bicycle. And he starts to explain why he needs it. And he does that for the next three weeks. And the dad finally says, you know, now I think if I buy the boy a bicycle, he will appreciate it and he will use it. And I think it really is discipline for us, for us to somehow come to terms with our desperation and appreciation for the gift that we're asking. But whatever the reason, I'm not sure what the reason is, but the prayers that really get answered are the prayers that are persistent. George Mueller prayed for five friends for 50 years. And he records in his diary that three of them were converted before he died. And somebody observed that the other two were converted shortly after he died. But he prayed for 50 years for those five, five men. And, and God marks the person who keeps coming. Well, that's enough on that one. So we pray as to a father, as family, as sons. This is a privileged relationship, and it's also a relationship of absolute trust that God can do whatever he says and whatever he commands we need to take seriously. Number two, we pray as brothers. Our father, there is not a singular pronoun in this prayer. You never see I or me or mine. It's always our and us. That means what Jesus said, if you come to the altar and you know there's somebody in the, your life that you, there's a problem in the relationship, that's a more important issue than coming to the altar. So you leave the altar and you go get that relationship made right. The Anabaptists said it this way, no man can come to God unless he brings his brother with him. Now that does not mean that every time you want to pray you have to call a congregational meeting. That does mean that while you're praying, if there's somebody in the congregation where there's a relationship problem, you need to go get that resolved, or it's going to hinder your prayer. You see, most people's concept of prayer looks like this. Here's God, and here we are, and each of us are coming to God individually. That's most people's concept of prayer. What Jesus teaches, and what we see here, and what the Anabaptists believe so firmly, was that it's like this. Here we are, 
and we come to God as a unit. And if anything here is not the way it should be, there's going to be a problem here. Now, I don't understand why in some congregations it is known that there are relationship problems. Two brothers, it's just everybody knows that knows anything about that church, those two people have bad blood between them. That should not be tolerated. We need a peacemaker. That has to be resolved. The whole congregation's prayers are going to be diminished. It's not going to work. So <clears throat> we pray as brothers. The Bible says we comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height of the love of Christ. We have to do it together. If there's a problem in a relationship in the congregation, that is going to diminish the experience. 1 John chapter 1 has something, 2 has something to say. And keep your finger here and turn to 1 John chapter 2. We're looking at verse 10. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light. Now I want you to think about this next statement. And there is none occasion of stumbling in him. Did you get that? There is no occasion for him to sin if he loves his brother. What that's telling me is all sin is relational. We know that. The man who lies to you, obviously there's a relationship problem. He does not really love you or he'd tell you the truth. The man who steals from you obviously does not love you. The boy that commits fornication obviously does not love the girl. And just go down through, if you murder somebody, obviously you don't love them. If you go down through it and think about it, all sin it has a, is the result of a relational problem. And John says, if you could ever love all your brothers, and it's an ideal we'll never completely achieve, we press toward that mark. But that, if you could ever reach that goal, there would be none occasion of stumbling in you. But look what it says next. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness, that hatred, has blinded his eyes. This is serious. This is really serious, to have every relationship in the brotherhood resolved. Like I said, it's an ongoing thing, and God's a merciful God, and I'm sure he doesn't uh, hold us as accountable as what he could for all of our problems, but I guess what he's looking for is, are we pursuing a solution? It might take a long time for that solution, and God will be merciful through that time. But are we pursuing a solution, or are we allowing this to happen? First John is an interesting book, because John gives us a lot of wonderful theology, but when he makes an application, he always, without exception, the application is to love your brother. Three times he dips down for an application, and every time, for whatever he said, it's to love your brother. That's the only application he ever makes in the whole book. This is a very important principle of prayer, that we pray as brothers. The third thing we pray for is for reverence, which art in heaven. Reverence. God is the great other. He will come down to our level to lift us to his level, but he will not come down to our level and stay there. He's caught, he wants to lift us to his level. He wants us to serve him with reverence. 
The problem with idolaters, according to Psalm 50, verse 21, he says, Thou thoughtest I was altogether like you. People make God into their image. No. We serve him with reverence. We worship him. Now, that word worship is a very interesting word. We have people this morning, I'm sure, in many churches that are jumping up and down and shouting and they are worshiping. Well, we'll let God decide if they are. Uh, worship. That was the original English word, notice. Worship. The word worship is a contraction. Worship. Oh, now we're talking about values. Oh, that's interesting. Most of our concept of Christianity is about morals, and it should be. I mean, it, we, Christians don't lie. They don't, they don't uh, live immorally. They, don't hate, they are moral people. But much of Christianity doesn't get beyond that. There's another category, and that's values. And this has to do with values. Values is what is most important among maybe two legitimate things. Which one is the most important? And if we worship, God is number one. Now you say, well, I wonder if that's true of me. Well, you can find out. Go talk to your wife. Go talk to the people you work with. Go talk to your children. Go talk to your fellow church members. What is it that gets you the most excited? Were you ever in a meeting where something was being discussed and nobody was saying, this one person sat in the corner and didn't say anything until somebody said, hunting, oh my. All of a sudden he had a tongue and stories and passion and it got really excited and everybody sat and listened to this person we thought had no tongue. He might have said he was worshiping God, but he actually was worshiping hunting. Because what you worship is the thing that's most important to you. And I would say betrayed or portrayed by the thing that gets you the most excited and that you spend most of your time talking about and you invest most of your life in. That's, that's what you're really worshiping. And he's calling us here to reverence, to worship God. Uh, this, is, this is very important that we really get our values straight because Hebrews 11, that faith chapter, faith, says nothing about the morals of those people. Nothing. It's all about values. It says Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ, something you wouldn't naturally want. Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ of more value than the treasures of Egypt. That's a value statement. So I'm going to suggest to you, according to that chapter, that value, faith has more to do with values. I shouldn't say, we shouldn't uh, say more to do, but has as much to do and whatever, how you want to say it. Faith is particularly focused on your value system. Let's say it that way. That your faith is based on your values. What you value to be the most important thing is the thing you actually have faith in, I guess I would say. So, reverence. We know nothing rightly until God tells us the value that it has. The 12 spies went into the land of Canaan and they all saw the same thing. They all saw the same thing and they all gave the same report that it was a good land. It flows with milk and honey. But 12 of, 10 of the spies said, we, despite the fact that it's a wonderful land, we can't go in there because it's a land that eats up the inhabitants thereof. I don't know what they saw. Was there fighting going on? Was there a plague? Was there whatever? But people were dying. 
I think they probably were telling the truth that the people in that land were dying. And so common sense says if we go into that land, we're going to die. But two of the spies said, don't you understand? God is getting the land ready for us. That's why they're dying. Come on. Why did they say that? Because they believed God when he said, I'm going to give you this land. So they interpreted the whole thing in light of what they were told by God. So here you have two groups of people seeing the same set of, value, same set of uh, uh, facts coming to two different conclusions. I want to read what they said. Only rebel not against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their defense has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. See the faith there? Because of the, of, of the way they valued the situation based on what God had told them. You have a song in your hymnal that says, let knowledge grow from more to more. Yeah, let's get all the knowledge we possibly can, but more of reverence in us dwell. That's what's important. Okay? So we pray with reverence, and the next thing we see is we pray for reverence. Hallowed be thy name. One of the church fathers said we should pray, hallowed be thy name in us. I'm not prepared to discuss whether that in us should be there or not, but I think that's the idea that people reverence God by looking at our lives. We, we hear too much of people who, people, in fact, I hear it all the time. They look at Christians' lives and they ridicule God. They make all kinds of horrible statements about God based on what they see in the lives of Christians. And we should be thinking in every decision and every action, what does this do to the reputation of God? Does it cause people to reverence God when they see how we respond? and what we're doing, and what we're thinking, what we're saying in life. <clears throat> we should have a passion for sanctification, which means to be set apart, to be holy. Uh, children of God, we sing the song, Ode to be like thee. But we with open face beholding it as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory. That should be our passion. People misunderstand the word holiness. It's closely related to the word wholeness, W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S, it is the Greek word halig, H-A-L-I-G, which means health. And see how closely that's related to holiness. Perfect liberty, perfect fulfillment, perfect success, perfect peace, perfect power, perfect well-being, perfect everything. We should not back away from this. We should embrace this as something we want, to be holy people and to be whole people. In fact, at EMC years ago, they were trying to seek a motto for their class, and I understand they, couldn't, they, they had a big debate as to whether it was going to be wholeness unto the Lord or holiness unto the Lord. It means the same thing. And that should be our passion, to be whole, to be healthy spiritually uh, in, in our life. God's first priority on this earth is his kingdom. Salvation is a means to that end, and we commit ourselves to a perfect realization of his kingdom on earth, a colony of heaven, which I've already described with the city of Philippi earlier. A society in which Jesus would feel at home. Would Jesus feel at home if he came here and he knew every heart in this congregation and he came to worship with you and he would feel at home with what he, he experiences while he's here? The sixth thing we pray for, the sixth posture of prayer, pray for obedience. Thy will be done as it is in heaven. Well, how's God's will done in heaven? Isaiah one time saw it. He saw burners. Seraphim means burners. 
People burning with a zeal for God. And they flew at his command and they were immediately obedient to everything he said. Whatever he said, it happened immediately. Well, how do we know God's will? That's a big question people ask. How do I know the will of God? Well, I'll give you three things. Number one, it must harmonize with the word of God. Well, you say, well, that makes sense. Does it? People accumulate wealth. And God said the opposite. So we need to be careful. Or we find ourselves a little bit like a person praying outside a bank. And you, he's praying and praying. And you come up and you say, what are you praying for? Well, I'm praying for Lord's will. Well, what are you? Well, I'm asking God whether I should rob this bank. That's the way some people pray. God, I'm trying to find out whether I should wear this covering. I'm trying to find out if I should divorce and remarry. I'm trying to find out if I should go to the military. I'm trying to find out whether I should accumulate wealth. Be sure it harmonizes here. There are some things you don't need to pray for. God told a man one time, get up off your knees, there's sin in the camp. Quit praying. Deal with the problem. So that's the first principle of knowing the will of God. I had an aunt, a great aunt, who married a Methodist. And all the women in that church, of course, were unveiled. But she believed very firmly in the veiling. Very firmly in the veiling. And she promised her family, it doesn't matter, I will always wear this headship veiling, even though I'm going to be in a church where they don't practice it. And she did for many years. And then she quit wearing it. And then one day she was cleaning, and she took a yardstick under a piece of furniture, and out came a tract on the covering. And she thought God told her to put her covering back on, so she put it back on again. Later in life, she got sick and ended up in the hospital, and they didn't take care to put her covering on. And Uncle Frank told the children, now when mom comes home, don't you say a word about this. And they didn't, and she never wore it again. Nothing is God's will unless it harmonizes with the word of God. Number two, God expects us to commit to obedience before he tells us what he wants us to do. It says, if any man will do, will do his will, then he shall know, Jesus was speaking, whether I'm saying this of myself or whether it comes from my Father. And so I like to picture it this way. God, I'd love to know your will. Okay, I will show you my will. Here's the piece of paper, and I will start listing it. But did you see that line at the bottom? Before I write anything on this piece of paper, uh, I have to have your signature. And once you have signed on the line and said, whatever you write, I will do, then I will begin to show you my will. So that's the second principle. We have to commit to, knowing, to obeying God before he shows us what he wants us to do. Because he knows that if he doesn't have our prior commitment, there are some of those things we're not going to want to do. They're going to be hard things. We're going to start arguing with God. And so he wants all the, all the decision to be made with no discussion before he begins to write because he knows he's going to tell us some things we would not have wanted him to say. Things that once we do them, we will look back and say, oh, praise the Lord, I didn't understand that, but now I do, and I'm so glad I obeyed God. That's faith, of course. And the third thing is we have to commit ourselves to pleasing God. And I talked about that, the, the difference between obeying and pleasing Obeying means we simply do it sort of out of obligation or fear, maybe. 
Pleasing means we want to just bless God. <laughs> bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Just bless God. <laughs> Please his heart. And if you have that attitude, you will know the will of God. So here they are. It must harmonize with the will of God. You must commit yourself to obeying before he tells you anything. And number three, you must commit yourself to pleasing and blessing his heart. Soren Kierkegaard was a Danish Lutheran writer who was very disappointed with the church. And this is what he says. The matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand. But we as Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obligated to do it. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in the world? Herein lies the real place of Christian scholarship. Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention to defend ourselves against the Bible so that we can ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close. Oh, precious scholarship, what would we do without you? Dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God, but it is even more dreadful to be alone with the New Testament. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I, I know exactly what he means. You know, people go to the book of Romans and they get this doctrine, it's all grace, it's all grace, not works. I noticed something one time. The word obedience is found more in the book of Romans than any other New Testament book. You go count. The word righteousness is found 39 times in the book of Romans. In fact, Romans begins by talking about the obedience of faith. And it ends by talking about the obedience of faith. I'll just give that for what it's worth. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. This is not legalism to obey Jesus. Please. It's not legalism to obey Jesus. Let me describe to you what legalism is. Legalism is that you have a code. I don't drink, I don't swear, I don't associate with the people who do, I don't do this, I don't do this, I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this, and that's your code. And every time you have a decision to make, you refer to your code. It might be a good code. It might have come from your parents who were responding to Jesus in obedience, and they made this code for their lives, but you're not referring to Jesus. You're referencing everything by your code. And Jesus can never say anything into your life like he did to your parents or the church because you're just focused on the code and Jesus can't ever tell you anything personally because you never think about what he wants you to do. That's legalism. But it's not legalism to listen to Jesus and form a code of behavior based upon what he has told and he can keep speaking and keep adding things to the list. That's the difference. The legalist has a code, and that's all he has. Jesus can never say anything to him outside the code. You may have a code, but it grew out of your relationship with Christ, and it's a growing relationship that keeps revising this code to make conform to his will. Okay, that's so much for that. Pray for necessities is the next thing. Give us this day our daily bread. Oh, so you take your check home on Friday night. I said, your check. 
you take our check home on Friday night. <laughs> this isn't your money. <laughs> it belongs to the kingdom of God. All right? Otherwise, our prayer is hypocritical. Now, we are to work, but it's interesting, the only motivation it ever gives us to work is so that we have to give. That should be our motivation. Of course we work so we can pay our bills, but, but the passion of our hearts is there'll be enough left over to meet the needs of other people. And we work to give. That's what we work for. We want to see equality. Second Corinthians talks about equality in the brotherhood. Uh, <clears throat> and we're praying for sustenance just for one day. Give us daily bread. I don't know if I can pray that honestly. We have quite a, quite a bit of food in our freezer. I'll let you ponder that. How do you pray honestly, give us this day our daily bread? Okay. The Bible does teach again. Listen, I don't think it's wrong to have food in your freezer. <laughs> but that should not finally dominate. That You know, there are people, they're afraid of what's going to happen. So they're stockpiling food and they're stockpiling. That's what God is talking about. That we somehow live in a way that we have to absolutely trust him for these daily necessities. One thing that's always surprised me, and that is the prayer for divine healing. Here's somebody that's accumulated enough wealth so that they're ready for cancer or whatever they have. They have a, quite a bit of money laid aside just in case. And then they ask the church to come and pray for their healing. Well, they've already told God they don't believe in, in his care. And I've always had a problem going to those healing services. I don't have a problem going to a healing service of somebody who has no resources. And he is totally dependent on God. So that's something for you to think about. You know, I think part of our problem is we see giving as, a, as a, an expense. It's like paying the telephone bill. You'll never see that money again, guaranteed. Or the electric bill. And I kind of think that's how we say, okay, I'm going to, oh, there it goes, never see that. No, wait a minute. <laughs> that's an investment. <laughs> that's the only thing you're ever going to see again. And enjoy for all eternity. I visited my Uncle John one time in Wilmington, Delaware. He was not a Mennonite. And he took us all around in his uh, Lincoln Park, uh, Park. What's it called? Park Avenue. Park Avenue, <laughs> Lincoln. <laughs> and every other luxury he had. And he knew what I believed. And so one day he said, Johnny, you might as well enjoy it. You can't take it with you. I said, Uncle John, you can take every penny of it with you. But you have to give it before you die. If you do what he did, you won't take it with you. Listen, I love my brother John. I'm not making any judgment. But, and he's gone now. To find out if he took it with him. <laughs> yeah, you can take it all with you. You can take every penny of it with you. But you have to give it and lay up treasure in heaven. The story is told of a man, it's an imaginary story, who went to heaven and he saw a neighbor of his that always was sort of poor, on, at least he thought he didn't have much on this earth, and he had this huge mansion, and he got all excited and he said, do you know where my mansion is? Yeah, I'll take you to it. So they walked down through the gates city and out into the blankets of heaven, wherever that is, and there it was, a chicken coop. What? That's all you sent? They built these mansions with the resources you send. That's all you send. I don't, that's not a true story. But there's truth in that story. And that is what we give, we are actually investing. We're not spending it. We're not getting rid of it. 
We are investing it. It is the only money. The Bible says, cast your bread upon the waters. Well, if you cast bread on the water, you see it all dissolve. Where, you shall find it after many days. That's a biblical promise. <clears throat> Live so that every meal is a sacrament. Equality was the great theme of the Anabaptists. They were opposed, and I'll just make this statement without giving it a description. They were opposed with making money with money. They insisted that all money must be made by the actual work of one's hands. And I'll leave that for you to develop in your own thinking. The eighth thing we pray for is for forgiveness. This is the only part of the prayer that's repeated after the prayer, where he says, if you don't forgive those who trespass against you, you will not be forgiven. Our late pastor, Lynn Martin, always said, and he said it many times and I never forgot it, forgiveness is the basis of all human relationships. We're all going to disappoint it. We're human beings, and, and sin is there, and we struggle with it, and we fail sometimes. And re, as a result of that, we're all going to eventually disappoint each other. Probably we're all going to maybe even hurt each other. It won't be intentional. It'll be like the couple that went on a, a trip together, and they got to the motel, and he forgot his little cases for his contacts. And so he got out two styrofoam cups, put water in them, and put his contacts in them. He got up in the morning, and he went to put his contacts in, and the one cup had nothing in it. Oh, honey, I got up in the middle of the night and I was thirsty. I had no idea that your contacts were... <laughs> That's life. There was no malice involved. She wasn't trying to be selfish. It was just perfectly ordinary for her to do what she did, but it hurt. And if he could say, oh, honey, I make mistakes too... Let's forget about it and let's enjoy the day. Or he could just give her the silent treatment all day and in every possible way put some hurt on her for what had happened. He had that choice to make. Forgiveness means you just let it go. You just let it go. Of course, there was a wrong done. My children would say, but dad, you don't know what they did to me. And I would say, well, that's the point, what they did to you. You just let it go. Joseph was probably sinned against as horribly as any person ever was sinned against for 13 years from the age of 17 to the age of 30 and we're told he was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh and we're told he was 70, 17 years old when he was yanked out of his family for 13 years that young man had nothing but trouble and he had trouble before that his brothers hated him Pharaoh's wife disappointed or betrayed him the prisoner didn't remember him all those wrongs that were done to him and finally, when he was taken out of prison and put in a place of, of power, Pharaoh gave him a, a wife and he had a son. Does anybody remember what that first son's name was? Manasseh. Does anybody know the meaning of the word Manasseh? God hath made me to forget. Oh, Joseph, would you tell me about your life? I forgot. No. Joseph could have told you every detail of that. He wasn't stupid. But you'd have heard no bitterness. You'd have heard no anger. All of that was removed. And he would have told you just as the facts of his life. In fact, we know what he said. God sent me here. He had processed all of that. And so that gives me courage to forgive, to know that God will take away the pain. He will take away the anger. He will take away all those things. And I will be free, and that person will be free, and we'll all be free. Jesus said, though, if you don't forgive, you won't be free. I talk to people who are bound by addictions. And the first question I ask is, 
Is there anybody in your life that you, don't, that you hate? Oh, yes, my dad. This. Okay. You have them in a cage, and God will just let you be in your cage of addictions. Or maybe it's depression, or maybe it's uh, uh, inferiority, or maybe it's uh, you name it. Things that people, loneliness, people struggle with. Oh, I wish I could be free. You are as free as the people in your life are free. Corey Ten Boom tells that one day she had, uh, she was dreaming and there was a cage and in that cage was an enemy and she was going around the cage and they couldn't get away. She had a stick and she kept punching them and the Lord in the dream said, Corey, would you open the gate and let him out? No. She said, finally God convinced me to open the cage and guess who came out? Corey. She was the one that was suffering in the cage. And a lot of examples like that could be given. But God gives grace. See, uh, I already took it off. God gives grace. She also tells the story of the guard in the prison camp where she was, Belsenbergen, in Germany. Years later, she was speaking in Germany, and lo and behold, down the aisle was coming the man who had treated her the, as miserably as he could treat her, tried to dehumanize her and make her life miserable in that camp. And here he was coming down the aisle, holding out his hand, saying, Corey, will you forgive me? Ooh, even as a Christian, I hated him. And I knew I had no control over my feelings, and we don't. We have very little control over our feelings, if any. She said, I knew I did have control over this. And the Bible said we were to yield our members. And this was one of my members. And so I started to reach out my hand in obedience. And she said it was like electricity went down from my shoulder into my hand. And by the time I clasped his hand, the love of God filled my heart. And I was able to honestly say, brother, I forgive you. See, this grace is given once we decide to do what God tells us to do. He's not going to give grace for us to do something he doesn't want us to do. But the Bible says his eyes run to and fro throughout the whole world to see somebody whose heart's perfect toward him, to show himself strong. And so it's obedience that unlocks the grace of God. When God sees us doing something he wants to have accomplished, he just pours all this into making a success because that's what he wants to see happen. Am I making any sense? Yes. Disobedience just shuts this up. You'll get none of that. God's not going to give any grace to anybody to do something he doesn't want to have done. But all of heaven is behind the person who's functioning... What, and doing what God wants them to do. And the Bible says we're to reckon ourselves dead unto sin and do the action and be alive unto God. And I could tell more stories, but it's time to conclude. Lead us not into temptation. Pray against temptation. Now, this doesn't mean you won't have trials. In fact, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5, a rather remarkable response on the part of the Apostle Paul. He talks in the beginning of that chapter about how he rejoices in the grace of God and how wonderful it all is. And then he says in verse 3, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations. How, uh, I want to raise of hands. How many of you glory in tribulations? <laughs> My hand isn't up either. <laughs> By the way, I took Latin. This word's a Latin word. I didn't like Latin. We all said Latin's a dead language, as dead as dead can be. It killed off all the Romans, and now it's killing me. But anyway, <laughs> we did learn some vocabulary. This word tribulum is the word for the flail that beats out the grain. 
This is severe suffering. And Paul says, I glory in tribulation. Look what he says. Because it works patience. By the way, patience is cheerful endurance. And some people think it just means endurance. It's cheerful. The biblical term is cheerful endurance. Patience, tribulation work of patience. And patience experience. That means character. And experience hope. And hope love. So if you pray for love, guess what you're going to get? Lord, help me to love people. Tribulation. <laughs> A whole process to get to that. Patience, character, hope, and then love. So why are we praying against temptation? Well, this is trial. But temptation is when that trial flips over into blaming God and blaming other people. That's when it becomes a temptation. Tempted to blame others and tempted to blame God. We're going to have the trial. But he's praying, help it not to tip over into blaming somebody. And that's where modern psychology has gone completely wrong. They literally help people to find who they can blame for their problems. And he says, Lord, help me not to do that. Help me to embrace the the trial. Help me to learn from it. Help me to be able to glory in it. Help me to be able to grow in it because I know my faith is precious to you and you put it in in, uh, the crucible and you turn up the heat because you want that faith to be pure and I'm in the heat and I'm praising you for the heat. Now, I'm not there yet, (laughs) and you probably aren't either, but we press toward that mark to embrace our experiences as from God and, and glory in them for the benefit that he gives. We never take our deliverance for granted. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, and the temptation is there to blame everybody, including God, and not to benefit. Our song says, my soul be on thy guard, 10,000 foes arise, and I would say at least that many. The Wesleys wrote a song, I want a principle within, maybe you've sung it out of my hymnal. One of the verses says, if to the right or left I stray, that moment, Lord, reprove, and let me weep my life away for having grieved thy love. The Wesleys were passionate about holiness. We can disagree all we want to with the Wesleys, and there are things to disagree with, but there are two things you cannot blame them for. One is their devotion to God, and number two is their devotion to holiness. And that's how they felt. The Bible promises us, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his presence of his glory with exceeding joy. That's a promise. Number 10, the last one. We pray for deliverance. Deliver us from evil. Actually, technically, it says deliver us from the evil one. And that's the way I always pray it in my personal prayer. Deliver us from the evil one. This is the subconscious cry of every heart. David said, deliver me from blood guiltiness. Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, deliver me from the body of this death. We all want, even those people out there want the freedom to be their best. Freedom from anger, freedom from pain, freedom from bitterness, freedom from disappointment, anxiety, poverty, broken dreams, and hopes. We all pray for, we all desire deliverance from that, and we should pray it. It's in this prayer. I love that song in our hymnal. Is it in yours, O life in whom is life indeed? It's, I love the next statement, from whom are, in whom our best desires are freed. <laughs> I love that statement. I, I get goose pimples when I sing it. O life in whom is life indeed, in whom our best desires are freed. Stir thou li- that life in us, we plead. We come, we come to thee. 
The thing about Jesus is he did not deny the presence of evil. We live in a society that denies that man is basically evil and that there's evil. I talk to people who say, I'm not a sinner. I'm a good person. And then they become totally disillusioned because that's not reality. Jesus never denied that reality, but he promised us that we could overcome it. And then we finally conclude, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. I I end here with where I began in the first message. This kingdom is not ours. We are a kingdom unto him. We are priests mediating his grace to a lost world. His is the kingdom, and we only build the kingdom when we do it his way and obey all these things we talked about this morning and last night and the first night. The Bible says that we are here to the praise of the glory of his grace. We are praised to put this all on display, the glory of his grace. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1 is just a tremendous chapter. In fact, I thought of preaching a message on that here. God chose us for the praise of the glory of his grace. Why in the world did he choose? He wanted to put his grace on display. He wanted to show the angels and anybody looking on what glorious grace he has to take the likes of us and make something beautiful out of it. So God chose to put his glory on display, the glory of his grace. Christ redeemed to put the glory of his grace on display. The Holy Spirit sealed to put the glory of his grace on display. That first chapter is actually a hymn with three stanzas. God chose, Christ redeemed, and the Holy Spirit sealed. And and the refrain is that God wants to put his glory on display. And I want to leave that with ringing in your ears when I leave here. That's what he wants to do in the kingdom. Put his glory on display. And this prayer is an important part of it because only by obeying what we studied this morning will we unlock that glory, so it can be put on display. Shall we bow our heads for a word of prayer? Father, we thank you this morning that you have given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Forgive us, Lord, for our limited response, our half-hearted obedience, our selfish modification of what you've clearly told us. And, oh God, I pray that every person here will strive, even though they may never completely attain perfection, may strive to deal with selfishness effectively so that your grace is unlimited in what happens when they talk and when they act. Oh God, just purify this congregation with one holy, passionate desire to be like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.